an itinerant teacher, rode into Jerusalem on a donkey. The gathered crowd, as we just read, paved the way for him with their own cloaks, taking off their jackets and laying them on the ground by putting down palm branches. Children and adults alike cried out to God and declared that this teacher who came was the king who came in the name of the Lord. Five days later, he hung on a cross outside the city walls. Three days, by Jewish reckoning, three days later, he stood on resurrected legs. This week, we will remember each of these three events, these three facts of history, these three key facts of history. Today, we'll remember his kingly entrance. And as the crowd cried out, Hosanna, God save us. We'll remember that. Friday, we'll gather again for our Good Friday service and we'll meditate on his death and we'll consider how the crowd cried out, crucify him. And then next Sunday, Easter Sunday, resurrection morning, we'll gather and we'll remember the declaration, he has risen. But today, like I said, we'll zoom in on this, on Palm Sunday, this triumphal entry into the city. Well, what was happening? To, to really understand that, to understand the significance of this, we need the backstory to understand why this was so critical. We need the historical and theological context. It's that way with any even just strictly historical event. If you don't understand the context, you might miss why it's significant. Let me give you an example. In 1944, a senior, senior citizen, 64-year-old American man, waded onto the beach in the Philippines, and he said, people of the Philippines, I have returned. Well, so what? Who, who was this? And why does it matter? But, but then you learn the backstory. This man was Douglas MacArthur. He was an American military general. And prior to the war, prior to World War II, beginning in 1935, he was a, like a military advisor to the Philippine government. December 7th, 1941, Pearl Harbor is bombed. December 8th, 1941, the very next day, uh, Japan invaded the Philippines. And so December 1941, they were invaded. He worked with the Philippine government to try to hold them off, and they did for a few months, but then in 1942, he was forced to leave. Actually, President Roosevelt uh, commanded that he leave. And so he did, reluctantly. Left behind 90,000 soldiers, American and Filipino, and he went to Australia to regroup and come up with a plan. And, and when he was in Australia, he made this promise. He said, I will return. And for the next two and a half years, he repeated that promise often. I will return. I will return. He repeated it on the news. He repeated it in interviews. In 1944, he finally was able to accomplish what he wanted to. He gathered the troops began a series of invasions starting in New Guinea, made their way to the Philippines. And in October of 1944, he landed with his troops and they freed the island. And as he marched onto the beach through the water, he said, people of the Philippines, I, I have returned. Without that backstory, he's just like a senior citizen taking a walk on the beach, right? With the backstory, you see how it's a culmination of really two and a half years there of, of planning. You see that it's a victorious general fulfilling the promise to liberate a people that he had to leave behind. 
It's the same and so much more when we consider this triumphal entry of Christ. Without the backstory, you might wonder, what's the big deal about him riding into the city? What's the big deal about what the people are saying and what they're doing? But what I want to do today is, is trace this storyline from the Old Testament to this moment and see the significance of what he was doing that day. We'll come back to Mark 11 near the end, but I want to, I want to see the history behind it. Turn first to 2 Samuel chapter 7. 2 Samuel chapter 7, one of the historical books in the Old Testament. And what we'll see here is that there was a prediction of a king. It starts here. It's repeated, clarified, fine-tuned, and other predictions, but this is where we have to start. You might recall this if you were with us in the fall when we talked through First and Second Samuel. But this book is a transition book. It's a transition from what had been a time of the judges, where for 400 years after leaving Egypt, the people of Israel didn't have a king. They were led by the Lord himself, working through people called judges that were raised up for certain needs. But what they found was during that time, there was just a prevalence of wickedness. As people, as the book of Judges says, they did what was right in their own eyes. And so they eventually asked for a king. And First and Second Samuel records the, the implementation, the, the rise and, and the fall of these kings. And we see that these were human kings with human flaws, but with teachable moments that pop up. The, the first king was a man named Saul who was appointed, and his rise and fall was swift and dramatic. But during that fall, another king, another king was appointed and selected, and his rise took a while. This was King David, one of the most significant figures in the Old Testament. And after David eventually took the throne, and before his own collapse and deep repentance, in the middle of that, God gives David this promise. And it's a key link in understanding the triumphal entry in Mark 11 that we just read. We read this now in 2 Samuel 7. Particularly, we want to focus on verses 12 and following, but I'll start reading in verse 8. Now therefore, thus you shall say to my servant David, thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, to be ruler over my people Israel. I have been with you wherever you have gone and have cut off all your enemies from before you. And I will make you a great name, like the names of the great men who are on the earth. I will appoint a place for my people Israel, and I will plant them. that They may live in their own place and not be disturbed again. Nor will the wicked afflict them any more formerly. Even from the day that I commanded judges to be over my people Israel, and I will give you rest from all your enemies. The Lord also declares to you that the Lord will make a house for you. The days are complete and you lie down with your fathers. I will raise up, for your descend, up your descendant after you who will come forth from you. and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be a father to him and he will be a son to me. When he commits iniquity, I will correct him with the rod of men and the strokes of the sons of men. But my loving kindness shall not depart from him. As I took it away from Saul, whom I removed from before you, your house and your kingdom shall endure before me forever. Your throne shall be established forever. We call this promise, this passage, we call it the Davidic covenant. 
Davidic from David, covenant meaning promise. It was this promise that he made to David. And there's a few parts you might have observed here. It says, I'll make your name great. It's carrying on a promise made to Abraham generations earlier, a, a, a forerunner of David, that God would give him a great name. He'll give him a place, a place for this people, this place of Israel. He'll give them rest, and he'll give them a house. He'll build a house, in fact, for his name. Who fulfilled these promises? Well, the immediate and partial fulfillment would come from one of David's sons, Solomon. Solomon would be a descendant from David. He, he would rule. He would build a house for the Lord. He would build the temple. He would sin and be corrected, as it says here. But Solomon doesn't fulfill all of it. I often use the analogy of like climbing a mountain peak and you get to the top and you see yet another mountain to come. That's really what was happening here. It, it, partial fulfillment in Solomon but not fully, because he said this is going to be a kingdom that will last forever. This will be a king, in one sense, that will reign forever. Solomon certainly didn't do that. David wasn't told when this would be fulfilled. Is this a generation from now? Is it five generations? Is it a hundred years? He wasn't told. They were just told to, to wait. One day God will do this. Certainly didn't get accomplished in Solomon's day. Other predictions came. Jeremiah records one. I don't have it on the screen, but in Jeremiah 23, verses 5 and 6, we see it even fine-tuned a little more. Jeremiah 23, verses 5 and 6. Listen carefully what was promised. It's, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch. Get this tie into David again. A righteous branch, a way of talking about this king, and he will reign as king and act wisely and do justice and righteousness in the land. In his days, Judah will be saved and Israel will dwell securely. In this, uh, and this is his name by which he will be called, the Lord our righteousness. He says, okay, not only is there going to be a kingdom that's going to last forever, this king who's going to come will be just and wise and righteous. Isn't that what we want isn't that what we always want in a leader? And he says, that's what's going to come. But they're still waiting. In the Old Testament, it continues to build specific promises like that, like we said in, saw in Jeremiah, but also songs. The book of Psalms was really the song book of the people of Israel, and there's many of them. We'll look at just two that were what they called royal psalms that were anticipating this coming king. So they would read about this, and their copies of God's word as they read 2 Samuel. They would hear echoes and clarifications of this promise through books like Jeremiah. And then they would sing. The psalms were sung by the people. So year after year, they would sing these psalms. And let's look at just two of them, not in depth, but to see what they would have been singing. Look at Psalm 2. Psalm 2, starting in verse 1. Why are the nations in an uproar and the peoples devising a vain thing? The kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us tear their fetters apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. 
Then he will speak to them in his anger and terrify them in his fury, saying, But as for me, I have installed my king upon Zion, my holy mountain. I will surely tell of the decree of the Lord. He said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will surely give the nations as your inheritance, and the very ends of the earth as your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron. You shall shatter them like earthenware. Now therefore, O kings, show discernment. Take warning, O judges of the earth. Worship the Lord with reverence and rejoice with trembling. Do homage to the Son, that he not become angry and you perish in the way. For his wrath may soon be kindled. How blessed are all who take refuge in him. Can you imagine the people year after year singing this, repeating this? What would they have been affirming? Verses 1 to 3 describes the rebellion of humanity. As, as very nations raise up against the Lord, what a description of sin. Sin is against the Lord. And they would raise up against the Lord and take their stand against Him, saying, We do not want your rule. And how does God respond? Look at verse 4. It's great. He laughs. He, he scoffs. That's somewhat shocking to us to picture God doing. It's not a laugh like, man, that's a great joke. But in the sense of, who do you think you are? <laughs> to, who, who, who do you think you are? Can you, can you really stand against the Lord in this wickedness? So he laughs. Del Roth Davis has a great quote on this. He says, The mighty politicians, the dictators in their military fatigues, the terrorists with their bombs loaded to their backs, God is unimpressed. If you have a sentimental view of God as the great soupy softy in the sky, then you will not understand this picture of verse 4. It's great. It says, God is not this soupy softy in the sky. He's not a God who will handle forever this rebellion. But he says it's there. And yet God has a plan. And this plan centers on the coming reign of his son, this king who has promised. And that's where it pivots. In verse 6, it says, I have established, I have installed my king. That's the legitimacy. It's coming from the Lord. And this king, he says, is my son. In the book of Hebrews in the New Testament, this is one of the key passages it quotes and showing who Jesus is and his superiority it asks it in the form of a question. Which of the angels did he ever say, you are my son, today I have begotten you. And again, I will be a father to him and he shall be a son to me. And the point in Hebrews is he's saying, this is no angel. This Messiah is no angel. He is greater. He is the very son of God. This passage is about Jesus and it shows the, scale, the scope of his reign. All the earth will be his as a possession and it shows the force in which he will bring justice. He says, she'll break them with a rod of iron. What a different picture of Jesus. Not a contradictory picture, but a complementary picture from what we're used to anticipating. We're used to hearing of Jesus as gentle and, and lowly, who, who says, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. And that is true. That is a true picture of Jesus. He extends his arm and he says, come. You're weary, you're heavy laden. Come, and I will give you rest. But he's also the one who will come with the rod of iron. And those who persist against the Lord and in ways that harm and shatter people. He will come. 
And he will come with, with judgment. And those are both true pictures of Christ. People would sing this year after year after year. They would sing Psalm 110. We'll come to this in just a moment. Psalm 110. Turn there now. We just read Psalm 2. Turn to Psalm 110. We'll just look at the first two verses here. Psalm 110, verse 1. The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. The Lord will stretch forth your strong scepter from Zion, saying, Rule in the midst of your enemies. The Lord... Yahweh, true God, to, to my Lord, saying, sit at my right hand. This is a psalm of David. David writing this, what is he talking about? Well, Jesus himself quotes this in Matthew 22. He quotes Psalm 110, and he shows that it's talking about him, himself. He asked the question, what do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? He's asking that to a crowd, and they said to him, the son of David. Why would they say that? Because they knew 2 Samuel 7. They knew that Christ, which means anointed, was the son of David, this coming descendant of David. And he said to them, Then how does David, in the Spirit, talking about Psalm 110, inspired by the Holy Spirit, call him Lord, saying, and then it quotes this passage, The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand, until I put your enemies beneath your feet. Saying, how would David say of his descendants, this is the Lord who's saying to my Lord, this is the Lord, this is my Lord. It's because this was anticipating the coming Messiah. This is anticipating the, the, the coming Christ, this coming King. People know 2 Samuel. They sing Psalm 2, Psalm 110. There's actually other Psalms too that were anticipating this King. And so they're waiting, waiting for this righteous king promised in Jeremiah 23. What did they experience? Disappointment. Disappointment. These songs and these promises created an expectation. And and we know that disappointment, we can often define disappointment as the gap between our expectations and the reality of our experiences, right? So a silly example, if you're if you go to Disneyland and your expectations are nonstop fun and then you get there and there's lines and your kids are throwing up and it's 95 degrees, that gap between your expectations and your experiences, disappointment, right? Okay, here, they had expectations. A righteous coming king who would reign forever. What did they get? Solomon, 1 Kings 11.6. Solomon did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. Did not follow the Lord fully as David, his father, had done. 1 Samuel 15.25 and 26. Now Nadab, the son of Jeroboam, became king over Israel in the second year of Asa, king of Judah, and he reigned over Israel two years, and he did evil in the sight of the Lord. 1 Kings 16.25. Omri did evil in the sight of the Lord. 2 Kings 3, 1-2. Now Jehoram, the son of Ahab, became king over Israel at Samaria in the 18th year of Jehoshaphat, king of Judah. And he reigned 12 years, and he did evil in the sight of the Lord. And on and on and on. 
I won't, but I could read to you probably 35 more verses with the same language. A few bright spots in there. A King Josiah, for example, who comes in and he rules with righteousness, but then he dies. And, and over and over again what they see is this. They have these expectations, but they were dashed. Until finally the people themselves were carried away into Babylon. And they returned, but never really set up these kings again. And what they ended up with was 400 years of silence. And can you imagine what they would have been waiting for, what they would have been wondering? God, you promised us a king. We sang about a king. We continued to. God, we're trusting in your word. And yet, we've had a king now for hundreds of years. We haven't heard from a prophet in 400 years. Is it ever going to happen? And John the Baptist comes on, the first prophetic voice in 400 years. And Jesus comes and he teaches. And then we get to Mark 11. And this entrance of the king. This entrance of the king that we read before we prayed. We won't reread the whole thing now, but I encourage you to turn back to Mark 11. After a thousand years of singing and waiting and wondering, now Jesus comes to Jerusalem. And he comes to Jerusalem, why? Because that was the epicenter of this promise. That was where God would establish his temple. That was where the kings ruled from. He comes with half a million people that are coming to celebrate Passover. And so this whole crowd is there. And, and, and the, the location matters. Like, like, can you imagine... Somebody in rural Idaho declares themselves the rightful president of the United States. And people would be like, so what? But if that same person amasses an army and, and, and rides on a tank into Washington, D.C., that's a different claim, isn't it? In the same way here, Jesus comes to Jerusalem because the place matters. The place matters. And he gets a donkey to ride on. And you wonder why. He's been walking for three years. Is he suddenly tired? Surely he's tired, but that's not why he calls for a donkey. He calls for a donkey here and he rides in on the donkey. Matthew 21, verse 4, it says, to fulfill what God had said to Zechariah. And that was a passage that Brad read earlier. Another of these royal predictions in Zechariah. Zechariah 9, 9 to 10. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Zion's another name here for Jerusalem. Shout in triumph, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. He is just, that was the promise in Jeremiah 23, remember, and endowed with salvation, humble, mounted on a donkey, even on a colt, the foal of a donkey. I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the horse from Jerusalem and the bow of war will be cut off. He will speak peace to the nations. He doesn't come riding in on a war horse because he's not coming to make war. He's coming to declare peace. And his dominion will be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. He, he rides, a, rides a donkey because he is fulfilling this. He's very consciously fulfilling it. And he wants the people to see he comes 
humble, but he comes as the king. This king they've been waiting for, this king they've been anticipating, the king they've been singing about. And the people, this crowd at least, they see it. So what do they say? Verse 9, Mark 11. They say, Hosanna, which means God, save. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father, David. Luke's account, it says, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. They saw this as the fulfillment, the culmination of all of these promises, all of these songs, this narrowed and fine-tuned expectation. He says, it's, it's here. What they didn't know is that it would be separated from this event to his coming reign. And in between would be another reaction to him. Not just this, this welcoming celebration, but another reaction that was predicted as well. In Isaiah 53, it predicts the reaction to this king. And it writes it in past tense. Even though Isaiah was predictive, looking hundreds of years in the future, it writes it in past tense from the perspective of these people who say, we look back, we missed him. We, we didn't recognize him. Because this is the reaction. For he grew up before him like a tender shoot, like a root out of the parched ground. Remember, this is the root of Jesse. That's the language. The root of David in Jeremiah 23. He had no stately form or majesty we should look upon him, nor appearance that we should be attracted to him. He was despised and forsaken of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, like one from whom men hide their face. He was despised, and we did not esteem him. That is exactly what would happen in the week to come. From the triumphal entry, this period of days, doing various things in Jerusalem, but then on Friday he's crucified. In fulfillment of this, he's despised. He's, as Isaiah would say, stricken, smitten, and afflicted. Our services this week, starting with today, are given to, to reflect these realities. The, even the emotional experience of it. Palm Sunday is a, is a mix of joy and sober anticipation of what is to come. Joy with the crowd crying out, Hosanna. So we sing joyful songs here to begin the day. But sober anticipation, because we know, we know what comes. Good Friday. On Friday is a sorrowful reflection that it was my sin that held him there. It was stricken, smitten, and afflicted for me. And so I encourage you to come out. Come out on Friday night, 7 o'clock. It's our Good Friday service. But you'll notice a very different tone. Because we want it to reflect this sober reality of our own sin against God. And so the songs we sing, the passages we read, as we take communion, even as we leave, we follow a historic practice of the church to leave in silence on Good Friday because we want to remember. And then we come Sunday and we rejoice. I encourage you, don't miss this whole experience of wrestling with who he is, what he has done, and celebrating him as the king who died and rose again. Let's pray.